struggling with your faith? You're not the only one. You're listening to The Drew Marshall Show. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to the Drew Marshall Show, streaming live at drewmarshall.ca. We're live right here in Southern Ontario, Joy 1250. It sounds like I'm saying that like a robot because I say it so much and I don't really care. Rosetheater.ca. <laughs> no, I care about rosetheater.ca. <laughs> hey, listen, Dr. Dominic uh, Erdozane, he is the author of Soul of Doubt. That's the name of the book, Soul of Doubt. Nice, Tim. Good song pick. The Religious Roots of Unbelief from Luther to Marx, from one British singer to a uh, another palmy. Do they say that around the world? Is that just a, a Australian thing? The palms. Eh? I think it's a general sort of not too pleasant but fun reference to the English. Okay, thanks, thanks. I, I need to get that time back. Doctor Erdozane joins us to discuss the rise of doubt and religious skepticism today. He sees it as an expression of Christian conscience and sensibility, and offers a bold reinterpretation of several Enlightenment thinkers, including Spinoza, and Voltaire, and Chai Chai Rodriguez. <laughs> I really hope anybody who's listening understands that these are all WKRP references. It is widely assumed that science is the enemy of religious faith. The idea is so uh, pervasive that entire industries of religious apologetics converge around the challenge of Darwin, evolution, and the secular worldview, quote-unquote. This book challenges such assumptions by proposing a different cause of unbelief in the West, the Christian conscience, tracing a history of doubt and unbelief, from the Reformation to the age of Darwin and Karl Marx, Dominic Erdozane argues that the most powerful solvents of religious orthodoxy have been concepts of moral equality and personal freedom generated by Christianity itself, revealing links between the radical Reformation and early modern philosophers such as... Uh-oh, I better stop and get uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Erdozane's help here. Uh... Dr. Erdozane. Do you want me to call you Dominic or Dr. Erdozane? I've, please, I've never yeah. heard anybody say, no, I'd like you to call me Dr. Anyway. Oh, they do. Trust me. <laughs> I, I'm sure they do. Thank you uh, for being on our show, and please help me by uh, pronouncing these names. Is it Baruch Spinoza? Uh, Baruch Spinoza, yeah. Baruch Spinoza. And Pierre Bale. Uh, Pierre Bale, yeah. yeah. So you've got a, like, dude, this is a heavy book, right? Is this not a, this is a book for thinkers, not for hardy boy followers. Well, it's, it's a book for thinkers, but it's, it's a very simple idea that um, the big challenges to, to orthodoxy as we've been taught it are not kind of complex philosophical theories. They're just simple ideas like um, God is love, God is mercy, um, and you know, the most severe critics of um, established religion have been people who can say that uh, with simplicity, someone like Voltaire. So, yeah, there are some difficult ideas in there, I suppose, but the uh, the most the most critical ones are quite simple, I think. Where where does um, I mean, would you say you you are a deconstructionist in your in your philosophical viewpoints, your theological viewpoints? I don't know what you mean by that exactly. Could you just? Well, I don't either. I just thought it was a big word to throw <laughs> it in there. Um, no, what I'm trying to get at is. I mean, you're, you're tearing apart um, theology, you're stripping it down layer by layer, and then if I get things right, you're deconstructing um, 
various paradigms that people have set out in theology and then rebuilding it with a better foundation. True? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's what a lot of these thinkers are doing. I'm sort of trying to do it as a historian and say, look, um, you know, here are the facts. Here, you know, the, the book started off in 2009 when everyone was sort of celebrating or not celebrating the centenaries of Darwin and the origin of species. And I just thought, well, is this, you know, historically right? You know, is this the, um, are these scientific ideas the ones that have unseated faith? So I... I looked into the past, you know, the, the biggest surprise is probably the French Enlightenment, and I found that it wasn't um, scientific ideas at all at work. So I'm, I'm trying to sort of write as a historian. Obviously, anyone who reads it will see that I've got a lot of sympathy with these, you know, my, my kind of awkward squad as I kind of codename them. Um, <laughs> I have sympathy with it, but I'm not sort of trying to sort of endorse it and say, okay, this is exactly what I believe. Okay, so I want to personalize this because I think this kind of helps us uh, regular folks hunker down into into uh, into what's going on here. Um, five years ago, I came out on air and said I'm no longer convinced that there's a God. People said, oh, he's an atheist. He shouldn't be on a Christian radio station anymore. Oh, he shouldn't be a hospital chaplain anymore. So uh, people tried to get me fired and, and uh, kicked off and whatever else. But the reality is um, that I've just figured out that I need to develop a doctrine of doubt. The reality is that I've discovered that a doubt is more compatible with faith than certainty is. Yeah. And the reality is I've discovered that there have been great men and women of God, you know, over the years, who uh, actually talked about doubt. And for some reason in North America, we have sterilized faith and and uh, really kicked, uh, taken uh, doubt and put it in the garbage bag out to the curb. You know, we just can't deal with it. Sure. I mean, it's not just North America. I mean, and probably one of my favorite people in the book is a guy called Sebastian Castelio. And he, he sums up sort of modern Christianity by saying, he who once said, I believe, now says, I know. And he says that basically faith has become knowledge, hmm. and it's kind of artificially precise knowledge. And you know, if you judge most of the people in the Bible by the standards of kind of modern orthodoxy, um, you know, they probably fail the test. And actually, there's a sort of inner life of some of the great saints. I mean, one of my favorite figures from the 19th century is Charles Spurgeon, who hmm. a lot of your readers will know. And he struggled with doubt every day. Um, you know, he, he was a powerful preacher, but in his private life, he really did suffer bouts of, of unbelief. And, you know, the, you, in a sense, you can't trust God if you know it all. You know, the, the, the doubt is, is almost an essential ingredient of trusting faith. But some of this history sort of gets filtered out as if it's a kind of almost a sign of weakness, and I really don't think it is. Thank you. You made me feel a little more normal. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, so what do you say to the event? I mean, look, the, are the evangelicals, are they fans of yours? They can't be. This book has got to be a kick in the, kick in the it, nads to them. It, it, it depends. I mean, you know, one of the, the reviewers who's at a you know, strongly conservative evangelical college liked it a lot. But I, I did blog last week about uh, the experience of, I mean, <laughs> talking about Spinoza. Spinoza is probably my favorite character in the book. And I think that he is, in a sense, as a frustrated almost a born-again Christian. He talks about the need for rebirth. And as I tried to argue that he really was someone who was seeking Christ and, and, and had a very mystical faith, you know, I felt people stiffening. And, you know, the first question that came up was, you know, would he pass a Trinity test? Um, <laughs> and, you know, the answer is he wouldn't pass a Trinity test, but are we going to force everyone into a box? Um, you know, on the other hand, you know, there, there, are, there are a lot of, you know, there are many shades of evangelicalism. There are a lot of, um, you know, the Arminian side of, of, of the equation, I suppose. They come out pretty well in the book. Um, but I suppose it's too early to judge how people will respond. Now, being, being, a, being a Brit, if I have this correct, yep. 
Um, secularism seems to be a pretty big deal over there in your neck of the woods, but maybe even, well, bigger than it is here, I would say, by far. Would you not say? Yeah, I think it probably is. I mean, I think it, it sort of comes in waves, really. Um, it depends. I mean, secularism is sort of desire to drive religion out of the, of the public sphere. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a different thing from sort of generalized unbelief and kind of, you know, in, in a sense, secularism comes along when people feel a bit threatened by religion. I mean, uh, you know, there are some parts of Europe where, you know, religion is so much sort of off the equation. You don't really have secularism. You just have this sort of blurry kind of assumption that, you know, God doesn't exist and we can all get on fine without it. So it kind of varies a lot in Europe, but I, I w- wouldn't like to make the comparison between Britain and, and Canada. I just think that when the church starts to get active in certain ways, there's always a kickback of some sort. Okay, well, let's segue from that into uh, the introduction in your book, which is entitled Desecularizing, Desecularizing Doubt. Yeah, can, I'm sorry can, for that word, by the way. Yeah, a, I just drooled on the front of my shirt. Um, can, pull that apart, right? That's the typical interview question, well, but please, I please. Think, I think that um, I started this book off as a history of conscience, thinking that you've got this sort of strong moral sense that sort of... Um, undermines the claims of faith. And then I realized the more I looked at the likes of Spinoza and Pierre Bayle, who's this great early modern philosopher, and you know, even the sort of radically, you know, the rogue characters like Voltaire, I discovered they all had a certain kind of piety. So it's really kind of faith on faith, faith versus faith, rather than a sort of icy kind of cool conscience that kind of cuts down theology. So I just thought we've got to get away from all this language of secularization and the idea that uh, anything that criticizes or, or, or undermines orthodoxy is somehow sort of spirit-free, because actually, you know, a lot of this story starts off with people like the Quakers. You know, no one can accuse the Quakers of being secular, but uh, they were the ones who came along and said, you know, truth is within, and, you know, you, it, inner truth is more powerful than external, written, codified truth. That's interesting. You know, I, I'm I'm now back being a chaplain again because I, I think... Oh, are you good? Yeah, well, I don't know. The rules change or something. But um, <laughs> but there's a Quaker on board with us, and uh, I went out on rounds with him. Really neat guy. You know, I mean, you'd expect a Quaker to be just a nice, gentle, meek, and mild dude. And he was. Sure. Uh, but, um, boy, I mean... Um, you know, the, I, I, it's interesting how when I come out and say, oh, I'm no longer, you know, I guess an evangelical certaintist, mm-hmm. that freaks out the Jesus people. But when a Quaker comes out with sort of this pluralistic uh, uh, code, that's a horrible way to describe it. But, you know, um, I don't know. It's um, it seems like uh, it's uh, what I'm trying to say is I haven't been picked on and I don't think it's fair. OK, it's just no, it's not fair. <laughs> I, I think part of the problem is. There's a book by Amanda Porterfield about the um, the Second Great Awakening. It's called Conceived in Doubt, and she sort of says that the, the, the revival very much sort of defined itself against infidelity and people like Tom Paine. And sometimes I feel like apologetics. I've got a lot of friends, like good friends, in apologetics, but it's almost like they're never happier than when they're sort of defining what they believe against this sort of yes um, this this sort of secular mindset. And without it, you know. You know, where would we begin? It's almost like we, we love these binary sort of us and them approaches, but you know, I've just come to to to, to see that so many of these modern sort of so-called secular ideas are just basically Christianity 2.0 or a different version of Christianity. So the whole language has sort of trapped us into this kind of either or um, 
mentality, and I don't think it's it's historical. I don't think it's it, it's re- it's real. Um, Francis Schaefer of Labrie's son, Frankie Schaefer, has yeah. uh, been on our show numerous times. One of my favorite guests, and he's he's one of the uh, first guys who helped me own my own doubt, own my own right. screwy theology, and um, and and stand up in it, you know, with a bit of pride, yeah. because he basically said to me, "Dude, you think you're the first one to go through this journey, really?" And then he started listing off a bunch of, uh, as I said, great men and women of God: G.K. Chesterton, Malcolm Muggeridge, uh, Mother Teresa. I mean, cool. you know, it goes on and on and on. So l- let me ask you, what was the turning point? When did faith become sterilized by by demonizing doubt? I did. I mean, some people will say it goes back to, you know, sort of early Christian apologetics, you know, third and fourth century, when you get all this kind of Greek philosophical language that comes in, you know, the idea we can really know it, we can prove it and demonstrate it. Um, I personally think it's kind of the Reformation, early modern period, when, you know, you get Catholic versus Protestant, and then all, you know, sort of Lutheran versus Calvinist, and there's this almost like an intellectual arms race of let's just batten down the hatches and sort of define what we believe with ever greater certainty. And, you know, someone like Luther starts off as a very fluid thinker, and then 20 years later, you know, he is absolutely rigid and codified, and it, I think conflict has a lot to do with it. I mean, you, you go back to someone like Augustine, you know, quite a sort of free and, well, not, I wouldn't say gentle is the word, but it's in his dispute with Pelagius, you know, he develops this absolutely hard-edged kind of, much more rigorous orthodoxy than he ever started with. So, you know, it, it, it's part of um, polemics and sort of fighting off sort of paganism in the early church, but I think really the Reformation and the, you know, the early modern period is, is what really sort of sharpened, sharpened the, the sword, so to speak. Well, when this book uh, came to my place, I was uh, happy to see it. I was happy that you had put this together. And I'm getting more and more books on doubt sent to me. You know, I've been talking about the subject of doubt pretty pretty personally and ferociously for the last, I would say, seven, eight years, maybe, oh, yeah. maybe even longer. Well, you've always said, you know, what is the doubt capability or compatibility? What's that line again? Yeah, what I said earlier, doubt is more compatible with faith and certainty. Yeah, I mean, that's just, I mean, that's... <laughs> you were tying your No, shoes. but I'm saying is that, yeah, it's going to the bathroom. You oh, sorry, right, you weren't that. even in the room. No, but I mean, you've been saying that for... Long for time. Years, yeah. Right, but what I'm saying is there seems to be a, f- a freeing up, at least in the publishing world, you know, maybe sure, maybe yeah. Moody hasn't quite jumped on board with uh, <laughs> with doubt, but Oxford University Press certainly has, and HarperCollins certainly has. Uh, right. So it's refreshing, it's freeing, it's beautiful. I'm, you know, and it, you know what it it enables me to find some peeps. You know, to find right. some, find a, I don't want to hang out with another tribe again. I'm sick of tribes. The tribal conditioning drives yeah. me insane. But I, it's nice to know I'm not a freak, is what I'm trying to say. Well, in his yeah. own mind. Can I get an amen, uh, Dr. Dominic? Amen. Uh, amen. Um, listen, I, I want people to get this book. So obviously they can go to Oxford University Press and uh, check things out there. Uh, again, the book is called Soul of Doubt, The Religious Roots of Unbelief from Luther to Marx. So much more we could have talked about, but it's radio and we don't have time. So I'm sorry. Um, Thank you very much for having me. Take care. Yep. Bye-bye. Thank you. Whew. We'll be right back. A little bad taste.